0: Welcome to the Deaf Studies podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethann
1: Michael-Fox. Let's get started.
0: So here we are, sat together in my living room. Well, yeah, is it a living room? I have no idea. That you've got so many rooms in this house. I just know which room is which. <laughs> the benefits of living in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, yeah, so we're sat here and we're we've got the baby asleep in the wrap. We're drinking a couple of pucker revitalised tea to revitalise us. We've had the, the traditional Cornish scone, jam first, lots of cream. Feeling a bit dizzy now. We're all right. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, we've been editing together a really, what we think is a really exciting episode on death doulas. Uh, Alex, could do you want to say anything about why we wanted to do this one? I think it's a term, death doula, that is creeping
1: up more and more. And I personally wasn't fully aware of what a death doula is and isn't. And I'm also very excited that we've chosen to do two interviews for this episode. So we'll first hear from Deb Rawlings, who is an academic and has been researching deaf doulas for a while. But then secondly, we'll be hearing from Emma Clare, who is a deaf doula herself. So we've got a nice duality of the academic and the practical side of what is a deaf doula.
0: Yeah, and it's really just, uh, it's been so interesting to hear what the two of them had to say and to to kind of come back to it because we inter- made these interviews. We did Deb's interview, well, it must have been a while ago because mm-hmm. I, I was pregnant, I didn't have a baby. And listening to Well, I did young babe. Now I feel terrible for my older child who I'm
1: just <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, so listening back to it, first of all I thought I, I definitely had a cold at the time. I sound quite quite run down in this interview. But I remember just it sort of all came back to me thinking how thought provoking we found it and we'd gone and read some of Deb's articles and things like that. And and then it just by coincidence I'd um heard Emma talk at the open thanatology group where she'd done a presentation with another death do that about end of life do the uk and her role there and so we thought let's pull those together and it really has made for a broader sense of of what it all is but i think both of us found afterwards we well, we've got so many more questions we absolutely for both
1: of them i think what well, we say it particularly during emma's interview that like, oh, I want to ask you a million questions so maybe in the future we'll Ask them both back and ask them how their work has developed over the years. Great,
0: so let's get started. First up, we're going to go with Deb. Deb Brawlings is a senior lecturer in postgraduate palliative care at Flinders University, Adelaide, South Australia. With a background in palliative care nursing, Deb is an academic researcher with an interest in the death doula role. She was an author and moderator on the successful Dying to Learn MOOC, Deb is also co-lead investigator on the End of Life Essentials Project, funded by the Australian Department of Health. Okay, our first question is
1: hopefully an easy one, but could you tell us what a death doula is and how did you come to research death
2: doulas? Yes, thank you. So a death doula, it's a non-medical role that's emerged in end-of-life care over the past seven or eight years and maybe longer. Um, And a death doula can be described in many ways as an advocate, a guide, a mentor, or a support person for those who are dying and all their family. The death doors are taken on by the family and work with them and for them. So it's a consumer driven in that respect. And the role really came up for us when we were hosting the first Dying to Learn Massive Open Online Course or MOOC. That was in 2016. Um, and during the The MOOC itself, one or two participants identified themselves as death duelers, and we thought, okay, that's interesting. But by the 2017 MOOC, there were a lot more duelers. So we realized that this is actually a role that's playing out in the end-of-life arena, but that we actually knew very little about it. So I Googled it, as you do. Um, and 10 or 11 web pages later, there was an enormous amount of information, everything from art articles in our local Barossa Valley newsletter to the Sydney Morning Herald to New York Times. Um, there were TV and radio interviews. And there were also pages advertising death doula services or even where to access death doula training. So, you know, really as a team of academics and researchers, the, we then went to the literature and that's where the research started. So with a systematic review, there was actually no formal studies. So that's where we started then with the review of the literature and then thought, well, we need to hear the voices of death doulas. And that's sort of a survey followed by some interviews. So that's sort of the background to where it started.
1: Great. And you've mentioned in some of your research outputs that deaf doulas often fill the gap, so to speak, in palliative care provision. Can you tell us a bit more about
2: what these gaps are and how they fill those gaps? Yeah. So as a self-described non-medical role, death doulas would say that they fill the social care gaps rather than the medical ones. So they work at the direction of the patient and or family and help support them throughout the end of someone's life. But what that support looks like uh, will differ between families and doulas. So for example, some will help with any health, household tasks, you know, washing up or something like that, and others won't. Um, some will work with the patient exclusively and some only have really ended up working with the family. Um, there are doulas who work mainly with the family, probably in the last couple of days of life with vigiling and then maybe after death in keeping the body at home. And some will then perform rituals during that time and, and sometimes go on to do the funerals as well. I think a main finding from our survey when we we're asking death doulas is that they say they have time, uh, time to spend with people. And that's something that busy healthcare and probably social care professionals as well don't have. So for example, companioning is something that death doulas say they do or providing respite. But then again, some will also work people to develop advanced care directives, provide emotional support, counselling, spiritual support, and things like developing legacy projects. So from here, we can see that it's not always gaps, but sometimes there are overlaps with things like the traditional palliative care volunteer role as well as some healthcare professionals. But I think what we found is that many death doulas have health professional backgrounds. So that it's it's no wonder that there is a possibly an overlap and, and I think probably some grey areas in there. I think also to be considered is that some death doulas charge money and others don't. Um, and that's a real consideration for a family who are looking for help and support from a death doula And obviously it makes it unachievable for many people who already have the financial burden of caring. So, you know, again, it's only open perhaps to a select few who can afford it.
1: I don't know if you could speak about that as well, but how do people negotiate those conversations about the services that death doulas provide and whether or not money will need to be exchanged?
2: I think that's actually a real tension for death doulas because some of them feel like, well, I'm providing care, you know, you'd pay a mechanic, you'd go pay $120 to have a massage or whatever it is. Why would you not pay me for the work that I'm doing? And then others are saying, oh gosh, I could never consider charging money. Some of them have sliding scale financial packages, I guess, if you like, for, for families. Uh, and if someone's in poor socioeconomic economic circumstances, they would charge less. Some of them will take money in kind. So maybe some groceries or food. Others are very sure that I'm a professional, this is the work that I do, so I'm going to charge X number of $1,000 and you can have me for as long as you need me. So because death doulas are taken on by the family, that's something sort of well outside of the professional remit. And I possibly think that many death doulas are actually getting their work through word of mouth. Obviously, there are death doulas around the world, we found, are on they have their own websites or they can be contacted through death doula training organisations. But also that some of the death doulas in our survey said that they received their referrals from health professionals. So that might be a GP, general practitioner, it might be a palliative care professional, or it might be someone in the hospital or community. So there's many, many ways that people find out about a death doula, and then whether they've already heard how much it costs or how that works will be, I think, different for each doula. And you've mentioned your survey a few
1: times now. How many uh, deaf doulas took part in that survey and did you also follow up with any kind of interviews or observational research? Yeah,
2: so we had, well, it was interesting. We had 193 responses, but it became clear at the beginning that not everyone was actually a deaf doula. They were a bit confused about what a deaf doula was and we had someone who said, well, I work in aged care facility that's the sort of work I do so I'm a doula. Interestingly we also had a so it was 193 but they weren't all complete responses because some of them interestingly of good proportion only came in unanswered two questions. The one question was do you think there should be registration of the death doula role and the other one was do you think there should be standardized educational training? The majority said yes to both, but some people literally just came in and answered those questions and didn't answer anything else. At the end of the survey we asked for people to come forward if they were interested in an interview, and then we followed that up with twenty interviews of death daughters, mostly in Australia, but some from overseas as well. So that's we've also published those. And I think you also mentioned in one of your papers
1: that death doula literally means caring woman, and most of your participants were women. So could you speak a bit about the gender dynamic of caring and being a doula?
2: Yes, you're, you're right. That death doulas, and actually that's, it's the same with birth doulas, are uh, traditionally roles filled by women, but obviously men are also represented in, in either of those roles. And I think there are parallels to be drawn with nursing and midwifery and to be considered I think I might have said, is that nurses, it's nurses who often become death doulas or or who are working in dual roles. So they work part-time as a nurse and part-time as a, a doula. So just through that, historically, women predominate. But obviously men are equally able and capable of taking on these roles. And that historically they they were, it was considered women's work, and, and I do mean generations ago, um, before everything transitioned into being born and dying in hospitals, you would often find in a uh, local woman in the community who helped birth the babies and was often called upon to wash out, lay, lay out bodies. Um, and I think that's where the birth doula emerged and uh, that birth doulas have been appearing in the mid- midwifery literature since the 1970s and from there also death doulas. So, yeah, predominantly women. And maybe taking a step back from that,
1: to the Australian context more broadly could you tell us a bit about how palliative care is provided in Australia and any key areas of research and debate that are happening there right now
2: oh how old have you got <laughs> so um, specialist palliative care I'll use that definition is provided by in- individuals so that might be in the rural and remote areas or have specialists quite often specialist palliative care nurses and then obviously you teams such as in hospices or maybe hospitals, not not all hospitals have palliative care teams. So these are healthcare professionals who specialize in palliative care and that is their main role. Whereas what we call generalist palliative care is provided by many health professionals and teams across the country. So for example, in general practice by GPs and practice nurses in community health services by physios and social workers and aged care facilities by care workers, just for example. So I think and most people in Australia, as with many countries, won't see a specialist palliative care service and arguably don't need to because, you know, as we know, the last year of someone's life, most of that last year is spent at home. So that will be in the care of health professionals in the community, probably interspersed with appointments and maybe admissions to hospital. And that's all outside of the remit of specialist palliative care for the most part. And a lot of sort of the education that we do is with the non-specialist palliative care, health professionals in, in care at the end of life. Here is a debate at the moment, I think really include um, care of older people in residential aged care, specifically. We've had a Royal uh, Commission into Aged Care that highlighted many gaps that need to be addressed. So there's, there's certainly a lot of work being done in that arena as well as voluntary assisted dying, which is slowly uh, being introduced into states and territories across the country. And I, we're obviously also aware here in Australia of the emergence of compassionate communities or a public health approach to end of life care. And obviously this is a very simplistic explanation of what can actually be very many different models of care and it is completely inconsistent across the country, which is not helpful. We have as some other countries do, uh, a Commonwealth state divide. So some things are, are funded by the Australian government, Department of Health, for example, and other things are funded by the states. So the state of South Australia, the state of Victoria, the state of New South Wales. So there's that divide and models of care and funding will differ. Also in relation to compassionate communities,
1: because Australia is quite a large Country and more outstretched. I can see it in the UK where it's very popular. Communities tend to be more close, to, closely together than in. I can imagine in Australia.
2: There's there's a lot of care considerations in the rural and remote areas. So if you think of Australia as a very large footprint, eighty percent of the population live around the edges, just because most of the inside of Australia is uninhabitable, desert. So. The, the people in the rural and remote areas, as with many, many different countries across the world, a lack of resources, don't have the same sorts of access. So that's where building up the, com- the community uh, support is sort of uh, very important. And to what extent do the Australian Indigenous populations feature in all these end-of-life palliative care debates? Increasingly so. So there's a lot of support, uh, resources, information literature around the specific care needs of uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and acknowledging that many of them won't access formalised palliative care services. So again, it's enabling support workers in the local community. We have Aboriginal health workers who sort of work at the grassroots level, acting as a bridge, if you like, between the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and services, palliative care and otherwise. There's often a lot of need to mobilise people at the end of life. They are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, and that is to bring them home to country to die. So it doesn't matter where they live, they might have a a need and a desire to actually go
0: back to to where they were born. And so that can mean sometimes, you know, enabling that. Thanks, Deb. And it's so interesting to hear about your experiences. And we're conscious that you were previously working as a nurse before you moved into academia. So it perhaps might be helpful before we move on to our next questions, which are, are sort of a little bit more about your work currently in the university to, to just give us a brief sense of how your career made that shift. How did you end up going from being a nurse to working as an academic and researcher? Well, actually it actually took a long time, if I'm honest. So I
2: started working clinically training as a nurse, which I worked as a nurse for many, many years and went to Having trained in Australia, I went to England to pursue oncology nursing, ended up staying for many years and, and sort of transitioned into palliative care. Uh, when I came back to Australia, 2001, I think it was, it, I actually then started working in palliative care projects. So we're very lucky here to have, you know I talked about the funding before, but the Department of Health, the Commonwealth Department of Health, Australian government uh, funds national palliative care projects and so we have probably 12 or 15 of those running at any any given time. So I started working on a couple of those projects and I think the thing about nursing provides you with many transferable skills that you can sort of adapt to different work areas and positions. I've always, well probably for 30 years worked in um, palliative care or end-of-life care but the, the sort of working projects then allowed me to work on different things and then Came to the university working on projects and then sort of transitioned into teaching again slowly over a couple of years. I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching and obviously taught clinically, so that that was a sort of natural transition, if you like. We have a postgraduate palliative care courses that that we offer, and they're all fully online, and uh, we work with clinicians who from all disciplines and from all around the country. And some um, students will be overseas studying with us. So we have doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, and, and that could be GPs, specialist palliative care consultants, oncologists, ED physicians, nurses who are working in acute care like intensive care, they might be working in aged care or hospices. And so we then have also occupational therapists, physios, psychologists, social workers and paramedics. I mean, it's a really interesting mix of disciplines uh, with the students uh, and they'll bring their experiences and perspectives. And, you know, we figure that palliative care is so multidisciplinary, so we are as well, and it makes for very real, very, very interesting learning experiences for the students. So that's it almost feels like you're back in a team again. It's, it's it's good to do that.
0: Well, that might be a really good place for us to ask you about the Dying to Learn Massive Open Online course that, that you mentioned was where you sourced the the original idea for... Researching death do this because some were engaged in that. If you could just tell us a bit about what that dying to learn MOOC was, and you know, for anyone not familiar with MOOCs, what, what that is, and why you decided to produce this online learning experience. As I
2: said, I was working on a project, and it's the Palliative Care Project, Australian Palliative Care Knowledge Network project, which has produced a website called CareSearch, and CareSearch has been around for ten or more years now. And we noticed in CareSearch that, and because many of us sort of worked in clinical backgrounds and we had a, a wide reach across the country, it's a national project, we could actually talk and get hold of and consult with uh, health professionals. But what we did find out is that we noticed we, we really couldn't communicate with the general public. It was really hard to to actually get in and talk to people. So uh, the director of CareSearch, who's um, Professor Jennifer Tierman here at uh, Flinders, came to me one day and said, I want to do a MOOC. Okay. Okay. So we did a MOOC and we learned how to do a MOOC by doing a MOOC. So um, the Dying to Learn MOOC was offered four times and we promoted it heavily for the general public. So we said, this is not talking about palliative care. This is not a medical course. Um, This is us all just wanting to have a, a talk about all things to do with dying, death and dying we promoted it, that it's social conversations, that it was about art um, and history. It's about um, all sorts of social, digital dying. But interestingly, in every single one of the four MOOCs, the participants were overwhelmingly healthcare professionals, two-thirds of participants in each MOOC, which really, to us, speaks to the need and interest for this sort of offering. And and opportunities for people to talk more broadly about death and dying. And there are still health professionals out there who can't mention the D word, the death or the dying, and, uh, you know, talk about euphemisms and so on. And the, the MOOCs were held in 2016, 17, 18, and then in um, 2020. And it's something that we're actually not able to continue with. So What we have done is the CareSearch website will be releasing, hopefully later in this year, uh, CareSearch will be launching some of the uh, Dying to Learn MOOC content and concepts. And, you know, for example, there's the euphemisms exercise um, and lots of other discussion prompts in there. And I think it it was also an experience because we are academics and researchers. So, yes, we evaluated the MOOC. Uh, we also conducted research with a core group, obviously it was voluntary and we put expressions of interest people to volunteer to be part of the formal research, you know, with ethics approval. And we probably published uh, 10 or 11 papers um, from the different aspects of the MOOC, including the research, and that doesn't include the four on death doulas. So it's things like death competency, meaning a life, quality of life, and then papers on MOOC pedagogy, we put a virtual "Before I Die" wall in the mooc, the can- Candy Chang's work, and uh, obviously some uh, volunteers dying. So it's it gave us a and a ama- I mean research aside, it just gave us an, um, access to amazing conversations. And every single mooc, all four of them, had a minimum of ten thousand comments in. Though we could be analysing that data for so, for many many years. Just a great opportunity. And was that free for participants to take part in? It was. The interesting thing was the first one. we uh, we had a th- over a thousand people in every one of them. First one was more international, so there was participants from thirty three countries in there, and the subsequent three, other three, less so, but still we still had. And some people came back and did all four, not many, but some of them, and they they sort of helped us. It was very moderator, intensive. So there was four of us, five of us who were authors and moderators and uh, it took a lot of work um, because we were keeping the conversations going. Not that they need that much help because 10,000 comments is a lot of (laughs) of
0: talking. And you mentioned in there about an activity as part of the MOOC, looking at euphemisms around death and dying. And we enjoyed reading your 2017 paper and an article on the website, The Conversation, and we'll put links to those in the show notes for anyone who'd like to read them, that discusses the importance of language and the implications of, of death euphemisms in practice. So we were hoping you could just tell us a bit more about that. The content of the MOOC was very eclectic.
2: So there were four of us, Jen um, Tim and palace care professor, said, who did the work on the Digital, dying. Not a clinician. The the other three of us were clinicians. Two weren't, and I elected to do week one, and we we basically elected what content we wanted to do to put in. So I I really started hosting week one, introducing the concepts, and just trying to add in a bit of humor and sort of a, a, a tone where we want to acknowledge that we didn't want it to all be serious or depressing. And to introduce some difficult concepts in a really gentle, non-confronting way. So humour. I that's how I started things going. And the first thing I put in there was the Monty Python dead parrot sketch, and then said, Okay, give us your best shot. Come up with euphemisms for the word dead. So people were incredibly inventive. Um, in that first MOOC, we had over a thousand participants who covered everything from kick the bucket to shuffled off this mortal coil to pushing up days to six feet under. So many of the well-known ones, but between them, they came up with something like 1200 discrete euphemisms. And then underneath they, they put in, they were supposed to only put a couple in, but some of them were putting 20 or 30 euphemisms. We learned not to allow them free reign. But at the bottom of that, we added a comment section. Um, And that's where the paper came from, really. And so many people, they gave us examples of very funny misunderstandings where euphemisms had been used. But the other side of that was some examples of very distressing incidents, especially in clinical settings, where not using plain language had really backfired in, in in a dreadful way. So it was really a good reminder that we should be very mindful not only of how we say things, breaking bad news or whatever, but obviously, that the words we use to convey important messages um, hold a lot of meaning within themselves, um, and there's that. A lot of the time, it was just the perception that people would understand what they were saying, but you know, it wasn't wasn't happening. So it really prompted us to say, "Well, we actually need to." And yes, okay, it's, you know, it was it was great fun that there were that many euphemisms, but um, the main message was be very, very careful. We you know, we know that in meetings, in appointments, medical appointments and so on, the messages are very rarely getting across in the way in which they're intended. And um, plain language is really
0: needed um, to make sure that people understand what's being said. That's really pertinent now to su- some discussions in the UK. There's been a lot of news coverage recently of people talking about their experiences of loved ones being undergoing treatment for example for for cancer thinking that they'll have added years from this and, and not not quite understanding that they are actually um living with a very short amount of time because they haven't been explicitly told that so there's there's been some really moving interviews with people talking about that that their partner, for example, wouldn't have undertaken that treatment had they known. They would have preferred to have spent that last year of their life differently. And I just wondered if you had any insight from your professional experience into what the the sort of barriers are to to having those kind of quite difficult conversations around saying that you know perhaps this is a terminal illness or you do have only so much time left.
2: Yes, certainly from my experience, which go which goes back a long way. The clinical experience is a long a long way past. But it was always very much about the first thing. Obviously, you got to set the scene for where you're having the conversation and how you're having it. But it's finding out what the person you're talking to knows or understands about what's happened so far. Um, And certainly back in the day, if I was meeting someone for the first time, I'd get them to go over what had happened previously, even as far back as their diagnosis. It was actually very cathartic for many of them to actually um, go through the whole and, and tell someone about everything they've been through the treatments and so on and then asking them what did the doctor say and certainly it might have been in the article as well but my colleague went to see a a patient and she mentioned his lung cancer and he was devastated he said but I've got a shadow on the lung and he didn't understand that that was the same thing quite why a hospice nurse was visiting but don't think it been processed either so it's very much finding out what the person knows and what language they're using and the usual sort of avoiding jargon and uh, acronyms because, you know, and we we talk about literacy and when we talk about health literacy, some a research I read a few years ago said that the um, when you come away from the pharmacy or a chemist with a prescription, 50% of people can't read or understand what's written on the, the box of medication as to how to take it, when to take it. So that always reminds me that literacy we need to be very careful and certainly on the web, on websites that, that we have here the CareSearch search website and others where we have health information for consumers we actually do uh, reading readability on them to make sure that they're sort of at primary school and school yeah primary school reading level because
0: so many people just can't understand well thank you for that that's so interesting to hear and of course, there was quite a few books coming out now for more public readerships about these these kind of care conversations. It's so timely, isn't it? Um, but it's somewhat, we were really interested as well in all your teaching experience because you say on your university website that you're working on modules including palliative care and oncology as well as adolescent and young people and paediatric settings and on a really interesting module called Care of the Spirit. So we hoped you could perhaps tell us a little bit about your different teaching experiences and and what those entail and perhaps some of the sort of challenges that you face in in delivering some of that content. Sure. So
2: we run um, or offer, shall I say, postgraduate palliative care courses. So all of our um, students are clinicians, they've already taken an undergraduate degree in health and they are all working clinically. So they need to have clinical experience. With people at the end of life in, in in some way or other, so they come to us to um, do a, maybe a graduate certificate or a diploma or a master's in palliative care. So we have core topics that they need to do, but then there's also a whole range of elective topics. And so we've got about 18 topics all told, um, and yes, so we cover paediatric palliative care and adult uh, young adult adolescent young adults. Introduction to understanding cancer and as well as oncology for palliative care and palliative care in acute care settings and in aged care settings or other ones. And yes, care of the spirit or spirituality, and that's quite a popular elective. Something that a lot of students don't necessarily consider, or they know that it's important, but really don't have the tools and the resources to listen or or um, understand what spiritual or existential distress some patient's going through. So literally we're just at the end of semester one now, so we've had, I don't know, 30 or 40 students who've just finished that topic, which they generally find very rewarding. So some of our challenges are we don't do face-to-face teaching. So if, you know, South Australia's got a very small population generally and how many people within South Australia working in health want to do a palliative care degree not that many. So we've always been online, which actually helped us last year during the COVID pand- pandemic and then obviously onwards because um, we didn't have to adapt to the to the new circumstances. But it's a challenge for students to actually learn how to interact outside of a classroom because we're very well, well aware that students can stay at home on their own quite off and after work might be in the middle of the night when they're on night duty, uh, trying to interact with others. And as I said, it's all well and good if you're doing that together at the same time. But this is asynchronous learning, so they're obviously posting things. Um, so we're trying to, you know, facilitate community as a practice, if you like, within the learning environment to, to get students working together. So it, you know, it's a great thing to have all of these clinicians. One of the things that is always interesting to me, and I, having worked in, in health for many years, is that some students don't really understand within the multidisciplinary team the perspective of other disciplines. So they're often very interested to find out how doctors view or experience things versus, um, I don't know, an occupational therapist or a, a paramedic, you know, where their experience is, what's their perspective. What do they bring to the team? So a lot of it is sort of trying to mimic the team experience in the online learning environment, if you like. So it's, yeah, it's an interesting experience.
0: It sounds extremely rewarding. I'm I'm sure it comes with, with an awful lot of hard work that must go into that.
1: You're speaking about different perspectives and then mentioning uh, different medical professionals, but I'm wondering as a medical anthropologist myself, do you also bring in anthropology or sociology? Because I think depending on the disciplines, there are very different understandings of death and dying in conversations around death and dying.
2: We don't because it is a very clinical focused degree, all all the degrees are, and, and they do have to be clinicians to work. But you know, to be honest, we we introduced some of that into the MOOC. I think there are lessons to be learned from the MOOC that we can bring into the postgraduate courses. And anthropology, as you say, that's, you know, it's a great example of different perspectives and, and views and considerations. So um, there's always that sort of, I find it fascinating. I think it would be great to bring it into some of our topics, but we're sort of very well aware that the students will come out of this with a master's in palliative care and will go off practicing and working clinically. And some of the international students take the degree and go and set up palliative care services in other countries. So they do need that breadth of clinically relevant topics, much as I'd love to be putting all sorts of things in there. But what we will do is once we've got the care search web pages with some of the MOOC content, then we will point them in the direction so that they can
0: go off and, and have a look at other other things. Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us this morning, Deb. We really, well, it's our this morning, Deb. It's not yours. <laughs> it's your afternoon in Australia. Then, uh, rents goes late in the morning in Finland. <laughs> but we really appreciate your your insights and it's been great to learn a bit more both about uh, death doulas and about palliative care in both your clinical and, and Australian contexts. Then, well, thank you both. It's been uh, interesting having a chat with you. I always enjoy
2: you know, sharing the things that we've done here. And I look forward to other things in the podcast for sure. Next up will be
1: our second interviewee, Emma Clare. Emma Clare is a health psychology PhD researcher and director of End of Life Doula UK. She's based in Yorkshire and she describes herself as an activist and nature lover with a passion for bringing death and dying out of hospitals and back into compassionate communities wherever possible. Emma's current research is focused on supporting individuals, both professionals and the public, to develop death competency or skills, capabilities in dealing with death and dying.
0: Thanks for joining us, Emma. Really appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Can I please start by asking you, uh, what what is a death doula? It's a good
3: question we get asked often and I think as sometimes annoy people by not having a really straight answer to it but I think that's one of the beautiful things about the role is that it's really hard to narrow down into just one definition because it's so flexible but there's a lot of metaphors that people use to describe the, the role such as like walking alongside people being a friend in death a companion but I think what all of those metaphors say is that it's something about a human to human relationship, which I think makes it different to other roles and that dealers are there to be compassionate, knowledgeable about death and somebody that the person can rely on to not shy away from the big conversations or the big questions. And in doing that, I think facilitates and, and opens up a lot of things for the person and, and their loved ones around them. So everything we do is... Doulas work in all different ways, depending on the person, but that's the thread that runs through all the roles, that it's about human-to-human relationship. The relationship is, is first and foremost what we work on. I know that all the roles, of course, have that relationship with people, but I think maybe they have to come first and foremost with their role and then build relationships, whereas we're maybe the other way around.
0: And how did you come to be involved in in this work and and to work with end-of-life duly UK? So my first job after university was in home care,
3: going around in the community, and I didn't realise it at the time, but I'd say more than half of the people I was working with had been discharged from hospitals specifically to die at home because they wanted to be at home. And that was a bit of a shock. I didn't realise I was going to be working with people at the very end of life, but I found that it was actually the most uplifting, happy work I'd ever done, which is not what people think often. And I found that after that, I did try and do other roles, but nothing really compared. Anybody that works in palliative care will know that you, you really get something out of it yourself. It can bring a lot of clarity to your own life, certainly stop me worrying about little things that don't matter. So after trying a few other jobs I thought I'd know I just have to get back into working in end of life and I actually found the doula training I think just on Twitter and thought it looked like maybe a good CPD course to do alongside my psychology training and I was just absolutely hooked because being in a room with other people who were so open to talking about death was just so refreshing and then really life-changing and I think a lot of doers would say the same that the core groups that they go through the training with the the relationships you form there are just for, for life I guess I suppose the other thing that brought me to it was that going back to the home care that I did I found it so frustrating not that it was about me but so frustrating that I could talk to the person who was dying and they would tell me their wishes and their preferences and I would then talk to their family who would say, you know, I think they want this or I I wish I knew what they wanted. And i I've been very lucky in that my family have opened to talk to you about death and always have been, so it was quite alien to me that how could you not have just had this conversation? But I obviously now understand that it is difficult for people. So I really wanted to get into a role that could facilitate families and loved ones having those conversations because the negative effects of that were so obvious and and were really I mean gosh were hard for me and I wasn't even past the family you know to to see that that person's wishes hadn't been acted on because they hadn't been voiced because they hadn't been written down I just thought what you know what a lost opportunity for the end of somebody's life to be you know bookended with an ending they would have wanted so yeah, I, I when I found the doula training, I thought, oh, this feels like a role where a big part of it would be enabling people to have those conversations. And I really liked the idea
0: of that. Thanks for sharing that with us. The things you were saying there made me wonder, what, what sorts of plans might you be facilitating a, a family to make? Would that be things like funeral plans or more around care at end of life or, or a bit of both? Yeah, a bit of both. So we do a lot of advanced planning with
3: people that's I'd say with most of our clients because what usually comes out in those first few meetings with somebody, as I said, going back to the first question, we are we don't shy away from asking the big questions and and it can be really emotive for people because often people just haven't been asked, you know, they could have been diagnosed years ago and we might come in and say, you know, listen to all the practicalities and the, the factual information, but say, okay, well, But what actually matters to you now, like as a person and people can think, oh, that the relief that people just haven't actually been asked that. So what comes out of that is most of the time, sometimes people know, but most of the time people know what they want and people know what they don't want. So people might say, you know, well, I know I want to die in this bed at home or I want to, I certainly don't want to be in hospital or I, I know for sure that if my heart-stocked I definitely wouldn't want resuscitation I would just I'd be quite content to die like that in my own bed you know so the logical conversation that comes out of that because we are we are there to listen and hold space for the conversation but then to advocate and make that as likely to happen as possible for the person would be to say okay well have you told people this can we get this documented so everybody's on the same page and working to what you want to happen so that might be helping them. We often would accompany somebody to appointments with their GP or if they're really unwell, we might ask permission for us to speak to the GP for them. So we would be encouraging conversations about DNA CPRs and we often write advanced decisions to refuse treatment with people. So that might include "I I don't want to be hospitalized point in there. And this varies massively depend on what area you live in so one thing that we really encourage doers to do is understand how that works in their area because it's so it can be a really complicated process for people that work in end-of-life care never mind just for for families and people that you wouldn't really look this up until you needed it so helping people navigate that system and saying this is the documentation you need to make that happen and then of course making people aware that that exists because that's you know it's one thing documenting it but you have to make sure everybody knows so then we would facilitate the conversations with the family and with the GP and anybody that's coming in carers to say look these are the wishes that so-and-so has made known can we all be working with this as our our priority so I think getting people on the same page is one of the the main things we do so when I said about listening and, and holding space for people that's a, that's a phrase we really often use but i i realize it, it what does that mean so i suppose part of that is the is that deep listening which which are skills people have in other roles of course but we do a lot of training in really listening to people listening not to respond but to open up a space as i say so that people feel able to talk freely without judgment without Without us having any agenda, because again, I know other health and social care professionals do a fantastic job, but they ultimately have an agenda because of their role. So they might be listening in order to complete a form or in order to make a referral, or whereas we are just there, certainly initially to hear what the person feels and thinks and how they've come to thinking about that, to explore that with them, to allow time and space because that's another thing that we recognize we're lucky to have. We have the privilege of tying with people where other health and social care professionals maybe don't. By holding space, we mean enabling, a, I suppose, a physical space as well, because you need to be in the right place, don't you? It needs to be in an environment that enables that conversation. I know I feel when I'm doing that with people, it's quite a, a physical thing. You're almost like holding barriers in a good way, like this this space is for you to share that and it is safe and there can be things that try and squash that so you might have you know a a professional there or you might have family members there that want to
0: challenge or don't agree yeah I've got lots of questions just based on what you've said (laughs) but we've got lots of questions prepared as well so I'll just uh, choose to ask one of them really which is going to be Anecdotal in your response I suppose you you may not have the sort of evidence um, collected for this but I just wonder from your personal experience do the majority of people you work with get what they want in terms of this paperwork that's put in place and, and you know dying at home those sorts of things does it often come to fruition? Uh, it's a good question and to
3: be honest it's one that I would as you say at the moment we really only have anecdotes but I would really like some my other hat that I wear is an academic hat and I would very much like to have some evidence for that and we are we are working on that in terms of research but yes I would I can certainly say that well there's plenty of research on the benefits of advanced planning so I suppose our benefit that's like the middle the middle factor because we know advanced planning has loads of benefits for people's care we know people are happier with their care that they receive we know that they're more likely to have multiple teams involved which benefits the support they receive so the fact that we that advanced planning is a core part of what we do and we are always looking to to do that with people if it would be something that's helpful to them i think means that yes yeah, we having a doula involved who knows that you would like for example to die at home i think certainly make, makes it more likely because we can do this the sort of softer gentle side absolutely the holding space but we are there to be a, a strong advocate if needed and to to really plan ahead so to be thinking you know you wouldn't necessarily go through all the what ifs with the person because that could be quite stressful but we're there to think okay well this person wants to die at home I can foresee that this could be a barrier to that happening you know so one thing might be that that isn't documented so then we can do that or that the family there's no support there's no care package in place there's no there's no family informal carers available so then we can we can tackle that as well so I think we definitely reduce the barriers to, to a person's wishes happening.
0: Now, you work for End of Life Doula UK as the specific organisation and the slogan that you have is Doing Death Differently. Uh, could you just tell us a bit about how how you do death differently at End of Life Doula UK? I love that question. I think it's, it goes a little bit back to what I was saying before,
3: that of course, to completely recognise that other services, there's hundreds of amazing services that work with, with death and dying, But I think our role is very flexible and unique and we don't, we are, we're constantly kind of back as an organization pushing against people wanting to narrow us down into a, into a box because that, that is, you know, that's what humans do to understand something. But all of our dealers are there to be, to firstly hear what a person needs. And then to recognise what gaps there are in, in support. So that could be practical, emotional, sp- spiritual, a mixture of all of those. And then we're there to fill those gaps. So that isn't to say that all doulas can do all things, because that's not true, of course. But what we do have is a really strong community of practice that people can draw skills from each other. So we sometimes we have a team of doulas involved. But I think our training as well really sets us up, as I mentioned before, the, the human-to-humanness of the role, that we go in with that first and then and then our role second. And I think that, that really does bring something different. It's so hard to, to explain in words. So if you were, and I have worked in other roles I, um, as, as a carer, as I say, um, in my psychology work. I know that, of course, you can still be very compassionate and there to, to build rapport and a relationship with a person and to really listen to them, but ultimately you're going in as a something. And of course, we are going in as doulas, but I think we are so, a lot of our training involves us being reflective and exploring our own mortality. That's the starting point for our work because we really believe, and the same with advanced planning, that we we can't do this for other people until we've done it ourselves. And I know from my PhD research as well that healthcare professionals, their training can, and that healthcare professionals say as well, you know, often ask for more training on death and dying because it can be quite, it. it isn't very helpful for, for what's called d- death anxiety. Our training helps us deal with our own death anxiety first and then we can be open to holding space for people we cannot shy away from that we can embrace conversations about death and dying and not even just in a tolerating the way in a seeing them as a really positive thing and I think of course there are individuals in all other roles that have that ethos but that's that's um
1: the way that we all work So interesting I just I also like Beth I have a million questions for you but maybe moving on to more the practical side of things and how you do your job we were also wondering because it sounds like a job that's also very emotional and also obviously because people are dying and how do you manage relationships with dying people and their family is your role to support just a dying person or people around them or both and also how do you end your professional relationship or start or end relationships with people who are dying thank you yeah um so we we absolutely work with the person's loved
3: ones as well in fact the referrals we get often do come from a family member for example rather than the person themselves of course we center the person who's dying so we would always want to meet and speak with them and understand their wishes and preferences but part of that especially because they they will love the people around them is that they also want their loved ones to be held as well. I won't sugarcoat it that can sometimes be really difficult because often you know it's no it's no lie that they're saying about deaths and funerals and marriages bringing out conflict. We've some of the people we work with And very understandable because, of course, emotions are so heightened at that time. But there might have been family feuds and people can really strongly disagree with wishes, you know, with the person themselves wishes, even when they've felt able to express them. So what I think we all work in a different way with that slightly. We all bring different strengths to it. And a lot of what we do with our referrals is we we match a doula and and a client and a family based on what they would find helpful so we have many doulas who I think might approach that in a I don't mean softer in in an unskilled sense but in a more in a more gentle way and other doulas who I'm talking about myself now might be a little bit more directive about it but I would always begin by talking to the whole group of people and saying when this comes up, you know, when this conflict comes up, when this, what what's helpful for you? Do you need, do you need a reminder that this is why we're all here? And this is, this is the aim. And maybe we can, maybe we're not going to fix that right now. Maybe we can park that and come back to it. And that ultimately we are all working to the same goal that we want this person, your loved one to have the best ending possible. So yeah, that's a long way of saying yes we absolutely work with everybody and a big part of our role is mediating those conversations and making sure that everybody feels heard i should mention that the training that we do and the Black do the uk our sister organization living well dying well their training is what all of our doers have done and a big part of that training is interpersonal relationships including conflict including thinking about so that they would say being your own first client thinking about what what might this bring up for you in your in your family history in your roles which is really important because if you're in say a heated conversation it can be really easy to slip into how you've previously been in conversations like that whereas of course we're there as a as a neutral outside so it's important to be very reflective about that I think
1: listening to you because it doesn't sound like a nine-to-five job and something that is emotionally very challenging, how do you manage your work-life balance and also just your own emotional response in all of this? Oh, good, good question. I feel like I certainly do, but it's hard
3: to say how. A lot of different things. So I find things like running really helpful to switch off. I practice quite a lot of... I wouldn't describe myself as a Buddhist, but I, I love Buddhist teachings. I certainly practice mindfulness and I spend a lot of time in nature. I've always, even before my doula work, really loved cemeteries, walking around cemeteries and seeing the changing seasons in them. And I find that really comforting, actually, as well in my death work. I think emotionally, in, in terms of like losing a, a person you're working with, obviously you know from the very beginning that is going to happen, which is helpful. And as I say. We've all done a lot of work on our own mortality and what we, I mean, as humans, we probably never can 100% come to terms with it, but as much as possible, feeling quite at peace with the idea of, of death. And so that certainly buffers a little bit of it when you're around it. And then I have to say the the rest of the, the work, for want of a better word, really comes from the person you're working with because you really meet them where they're at. So I think I mentioned before that I went into home care thinking that it was, you know, people said, oh, gosh, that sounds like miserable work. And actually, it was beautiful work. And it still is because and I'm not saying there's a right way or a right attitude to have like, you know, some people are angry to the end and that is their way of doing it. And that is absolutely fine. But some people are their peace with the idea is, is contagious. And I think if you're if you're working with somebody who and that. I have to say the people I've worked with that is often the case that there might be a lot of chaos, want of a better word, around a person, but actually they themselves, when you talk to them, are they're quite at peace with it. You know, they might have a few things they want to tie up, a few things they want to say to people. They might want to document something in terms of their legacy. But other than that, they're, they're
1: very at peace with the idea that really helps me mm-hmm. to be as well. Practically. Do you work with one person at the time or do you have multiple clients at the same time? How does all of that work? The context to that
3: is that we have become much more busy over the past year especially. So if you went back a few years, the number of doodlers that we have, it was, you know, the demand wasn't necessarily there. So that would, yeah, be a one person at a time. It's a little bit different now that we're certainly seeing... Specific areas in particular have got really busy. So some of the people I've worked with, yes, I might have worked with two or three people at a time, but we are very careful not to, and I as a person as well, very careful to make sure they're not going to sort of detract from the support you can offer each of the people. So we we do work with people at the very end of life often, but we also have people who get in touch when they've just been diagnosed obviously you can never say for sure, but they might have years still to live. We also get contacted pe- by relatively young, healthy people who just want help with our advanced planning. So in that case, I'd be I'd be mindful of who I was working with. You know, there's no reason why I couldn't work with all of those different people. I probably wouldn't work with multiple people right at the very end, just in case, you know, I need to be there quickly. But that goes back a little bit to what what we do and that, a big part of what we do is empower the person's loved ones and their network and their community to look after the person. So I do find that maybe initially, say for example, somebody's daughter has re- referred to us, and they might say, "Oh, you know, gosh, I I need somebody that I can ring twenty four hours a day if I don't know what's happening if I don't." And of course, I offer that and say, "Yeah, you can ring me." anytime I often find that as time goes by and they feel more confident and more supported that can move from actually I think I can do this myself I just need to I just need to check with somebody I just need to bounce ideas off somebody so I've had many calls where they might have rung and said oh gosh this is happening I can't I can't deal with it like please come and help me and then I and of course I would but after maybe 10 minutes talking and asking them what what do you feel is the right thing to do? What's what, what your gut telling you you should do? Should you go and be with that person? Should, do you need to sit with them? Do you need to do something else? They often end up saying, actually, I, I think I do know what to do. I just needed someone to run it by. So, yeah, going back to the practicalities, it means that actually it's not as, you know, on call for one of a less medical term as I first thought.
1: You also mentioned that you got more busy in the last year and also we've been living through a pandemic for a while now and I was just wondering how does COVID-19 impact your job because it sounds like a lot of face-to-face contact but also probably physical contact between people and I assume it's very difficult if that's no longer allowed. It's been
3: difficult across the board, hasn't it? Certainly we usually ideally work with people face-to-face and we did continue to offer that. I'm not saying it's over, but the height of the pandemic here, we continue to offer that if that's what people wanted. We asked if people wanted to be seen face-to-face or remotely. So we did end up with a lot more remote work and we did set up a helpline, 24-hour helpline as well, so that people were ringing for support over the phone, which was different. The other thing that changed is that Before that, I think we were more likely to have people contact us early on in their diagnosis. Whereas we, again, not to use too medical a term, but we had a lot more acute referrals where people were really, you know, actively dying. And maybe just we, in that case, often we didn't, we didn't even go and meet the person. They were ringing up the helpline and saying, you know, I'm with my dad. They are, he's dying now. What do I do? And a a big part of our role is, if people want that, talking people through what they might expect to happen in the dying process. So I sometimes liken it to a a midwife analogy. I haven't had a child myself, but in the same way, a midwife might make a birth plan and say at this stage, we might expect this to happen. If there's, this is our plan A, but if that's not possible, here's here's the plan A, uh, plan B, we'll develop together. And we help a person do that with sort of like a a dying planner I suppose in that we can say you know you might experience this symptom you might see your loved one doing this you know if there's like agitation or but then we can explain to people but that's what this means or a lot of symptoms and this really contributes to I think a lot of fear around death and dying a lot of symptoms can be misinterpreted because they can be much more distressing for the people watching than the person themselves. And one of our End of Life UK patrons, Dr. Catherine Mannix, she has a couple of books and with the end in mind, is just fantastic at talking about what those symptoms mean. And I think that's so helpful for for a person's loved ones. Uh, You've also
1: mentioned that you are doing a PhD or have you finished your PhD? I am doing... You're doing a PhD brilliant. Could you tell us a bit about your research and whether it's linked to your death doula work?
3: Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, So yeah, I'm in my third year. So I'm from a health psychology background. So it is in health psychology, but I always wanted to steer my psychology work into death and dying. So my supervisors are from health psychology and from a nursing background. So my master's research looked at death anxiety in healthcare professionals and whether Their own death anxiety got in the way of them having good quality communication with patients about death and dying and found that death anxiety itself wasn't the barrier, but people's awareness of death anxiety seemed to be. So you had people providing good care across the board, but people that were very death anxious, as long as they were able to recognize that and say, this is how I deal with that. This is how I work around that to still provide good care seem to be much better for patients and then for my PhD I've I've flipped that slightly because I didn't want to focus just on how can we reduce anxiety I wanted to focus on more like a positive how can we help people feel more competent in doing this so I'm now looking at death competency development in healthcare professionals and looking at what factors might promote that and how that links to their early career experience of death so how how they view, how they appraise their first and most memorable death event. Does that affect how death competent they go on to feel? And where are you studying? University of Derby. And yes, it absolutely links to my doula work. So I have the the participants in my studies have been doulas, doctors and nurses, so that I can also look at potentially how the the different training Roots affect death competency. Obviously, you've got two roles there that are very, very medical model centred that can really view death as a failure. And then you've got the doula role, which is the total opposite to that. And it's very much about beginning by looking inward and dealing with our own mortality and then going outward to, to work with people. So I'm really interested in how we could potentially use skills that we use in doula training to help healthcare professionals work with death and dying
0: as well I'm really interested in your research and I've been reading quite a bit lately about doctors and of course this sort of idea that doctors are invulnerable to having fear or they're just superheroes and things like that which of course in many ways they are superheroes but yeah I've been reading some stuff by I think Caroline Elton um, who writes about the idea that doctors are, are also human and the inner lives of people struggling with these these different types of things I wondered whether your participants had really welcomed the opportunity to talk about these kind of things and have those conversations with you.
3: Great question I I really think I didn't ask them explicitly but I really got the sense that they did and I actually had to change my research method because of the pandemic I was due to interview doctors and nurses and had to change it to an online survey where they could they could type freely about their experiences and to be honest I was a little bit pessimistic and I thought that you know, this this really was the peak of the pandemic and I thought they'd be, well, they were very busy, have a lot of other things to deal with, probably completing a survey would not be high up the priority list. But actually, the number of responses I got was just phenomenal. Yeah, well over 100 people and they all spent a lot of time writing their experiences down and, and saying, oh, you know, I haven't really been asked this before, actually. And uh, it's yeah, it's nice to be asked. And the, the people I interviewed my master's research before definitely I think were quite surprised to be asked that somebody really wanted to hear about their experience and I included a question in there about what what they think would help improve end-of-life communication in hospitals and they had such great ideas and yeah and again said you know I haven't really been asked that but I've, I've always thought that this would be really useful so I think yeah i it's it's tricky isn't it what you were saying about viewing healthcare professionals as as superheroes because of course they do amazing work but that also contributes to like their their view of them oh yeah they're superheroes they'll just get on with it they'll um will will clap for them <laughs> but actually it's been really traumatic and a lot of the stories they shared and i'm very grateful to people really harrowing stories but of course I'm hoping that we can use them to then improve the support for healthcare
1: professionals in their work. Brilliant. Well, this has been really interesting. So thank you very much for sharing both your PhD work and your work as a deaf doula and we'll maybe in a few years, ask you back to elaborate on all the projects you've been doing, but thank you very much for your time today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. This was such an interesting episode. I particularly liked how Deb's interview was talking about some of the limitations of healthcare professionals, for example, in their lack of time in dealing with families and dying people and really go through their wishes and what they want. And that is particularly what Emma picked up on as well, that part of her role is having the time to sit with families and really unpack what do people want and don't want
0: towards the end of life. Yeah, certainly. So some of the questions that I was sort of left with for, from both of them were questions around how diverse is the pool of death dooders in terms of like who is who is doing it. Or we mentioned, I think, in both interviews it was predominantly uh, women who, who were involved in this role. Who, who else is doing it? Are different people from different types of communities doing it? Are there some communities where it, it, it's perhaps less of a requirement because there's more of a notion of of it happening anyway with perhaps intergenerational living and, and more people being able to or or willing to provide that kind of end of life care role or perhaps that's just an old sort of idea that's no longer really valid in in the kind of world we live in now where so many people's lives are just so busy with with so much going on and then that sort of led me to thinking about like well that those awkward conversations which I guess sometimes are awkward but aren't always around payment and how much this sort of thing costs because it perhaps like much of women's work or what we (laughs) might perceive as women's work might not be seen as having value and I know that Emma was willing to talk about both these sets of things with us but we just didn't have the time so those could be things we might come back to and perhaps if you've got any questions that you would like to pose about death jewelers you could pop us a message you can leave us an audio message on Anchor Or you can drop us an email or tweet. I think this episode was a great starting point for,
1: as you say, future episodes, because one of our aims is also to talk about diversity, of deaf studies. And I'm wondering, is this a very wide middle class phenomena or to what extent do people from more vulnerable or marginalized people make use of these services, know they exist? And also there are probably just societies and communities that just naturally have these kinds of conversations, so they don't need a deaf doula. It's just ingrained in the way they are. So I would be curious to find out. If people know about communities where talking about death and dying, and particularly about the dying part, I would be fascinated to hear more about that. So also, if you have any papers or books you think we should read, I would definitely be interested to hearing about those. Thank you all for listening to our third episode of the Deaf Studies Podcast, and we hope you tune in again next time. Thank you for listening to the Deaf Studies Podcast. You can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website, thedeafstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment. Follow us on social media at thedeafpodcast. And of course, spread the word.